Hi, my name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State. Welcome to part two of Ministry to State's Bible study through the book of Daniel. Last week we began our Bible study and looked at the first chapter, and this week we are going to be continuing our study and looking at the second chapter of the book of Daniel. As we begin this uh, story, I want to make a comment about Daniel. Uh, as we know, Daniel was in power working with multiple empires for a period of about 70 years. And throughout the book of Daniel, we are giving several interesting, gripping stories. We're giving rich and meaningful visions. There are tales of court contests and drama. There are life-harrowing escapes from the jaws of death. But when we look at these stories and these visions, and we set them within the period of 70 years, we realize that we're only given about six narratives and six chapters of visions. So what we can say about Daniel is that there must have been much in the interim that was full of the ho-hum and the doldrums of life. And I think from this, there's a substantive lesson we can learn is that even when life seems boring, and I think for much of us, with the exception of the time right now with COVID-19 and even the new normal that might seem boring at times, there are kind of the repetitiousness of days. And even in this repetitiousness, God is working in our lives to prepare us for moments of trial and tribulation, to prepare us for moments of test. And when they come, are we ready for them? And in this this time of of maybe restlessness, are we using these hours God has given us to be ready for times of testing and trial? N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, is a book on Christian ethics. He talks about the habits that we form and the importance of habits and training and equipping us to live lives of godliness. And so as we continue looking at Daniel, we look at this unique story. I just want to make sure that we remember that not all of Daniel's life was this this incredible, this intense, this dramatic, um, that there was a lot of just kind of almost banality. There's a lot of just regular um, day in and day outness of his life. So as we look at Daniel chapter two, I want to divide it into six parts. And I want to divide it into six parts because Ernest C. Lucas, who's a commentator on Daniel, divides it into six parts as kind of a six act play. In verses 1 through 13, we see the failure of the Babylonian sages to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In 14 through 23, Daniel seeks and obtains the dream's content and interpretation. And then 24 through 28a, Daniel witnesses to the God who reveals mystery. And then 28b through 35, Daniel recounts the dream. 36 through 45, Daniel interprets the dream. And then the last four verses, 46 through 49, Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel and his God. This is a helpful way to break it down so that we can see clearly each one of these parts. Also, as as I've kind of alluded to, this is a tale of court drama. So in this particular era in which Daniel lived, there was a genre of literature that was a court drama. And these dramas took place between individuals, but they weren't just between individuals. They were between the gods that these individuals represented. So as Nebuchadnezzar has his his group of experts, Daniel is brought in uh, and we see that Daniel represents his God, the God of the people of Israel, the God um, who became incarnate for us. So let's go ahead and look at Daniel 2, 1 through 13. These opening verses provide something of a dramatic buildup. 
We know that Nebuchadnezzar has started to have dreams of such intensity that they have given him sleepless nights. And so he calls his court experts. In in this section, there is a list of four different types of court expert. And this serves not so much to, to kind of parse out different roles that they had, but this serves the function of showing the impressive scope that was available to Nebuchadnezzar. Those who are standing before him represent the impressive array of counselors of all the kingdoms of the earth. And after Nebuchadnezzar refuses to tell these court experts the contents of his dreams, the battle lines are drawn. And the battle lines are drawn between the wisdom of the kingdoms of the world and the wisdom of the kingdom of God. And we know this because, uh, and this sets up for Daniel's success, because they say this. They say, there is no man on earth who can meet the king's demand. That turns out to be correct. And in typical Nebuchadnezzar fashion, uh, he is a man of extremes, not one to do anything halfway. He decrees all wise men to be killed. And so now we move into the second act. This is verses 14 through 23, in which Daniel seeks and obtains the dream's content and interpretation. And what we see is that in, in stark contrast to the court experts' imprudence and pushiness, there is a wise and calm response in Daniel's actions. Shortly after Nebuchadnezzar makes this announcement to kill all of the wise men, he is approached by Arioch. Arioch, his name uh, means something like chief butcher, uh, and that is a fitting name for the job that he has been sent out to do. So he comes to Daniel, and in verse 15, I love the question Daniel asks. He asks, why is the decree of the king so urgent? He doesn't ask why Nebuchadnezzar wants the wise men killed. He doesn't ask what happened. He doesn't even say, would you protect me and save me? What he does is he asks a question that allows the door to open so that he can get to the heart of the matter. He asks, why is this such a pressing issue? Why are all of these people going to be killed so quickly because of Nebuchadnezzar's fear and anxiety? His kind of paranoia, because we see that he, uh, as we saw in the previous section in the, in the verses, that Nebuchadnezzar does not trust his court advisors. So in verses 17 through 23, Daniel goes to his friends, and in verse 18, we see that he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. One of the things that we see here from Daniel is that he was not just concerned with his own livelihood or those of his own people, but that he was concerned with all the people, even those who would later on end up becoming his enemies that he desires that none shall die because of Nebuchadnezzar's hastiness. And so after they pray, God reveals the dream and its meaning to Daniel. And instead of Daniel running off to the king directly, Daniel pauses and continues to pray and gives praise to God. One of the words that's used here is mystery. We are told that Daniel asks, his friends, to pray to the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And this mystery is a word that, in its context, basically is something that can only be revealed by God. This is not something that can be sought out and understood just by thinking hard enough or by any level of intellect. 
This is a matter that must be revealed, a mystery that must be revealed by the God of heaven to Daniel. But what's also important here is that Daniel's wisdom is used to buy time to seek out the meaning of the dream. So we know that there are things upon which we must rely for God to give us meaning and revelation into, but he has also given us wisdom, and he's given us wisdom to know how to act within these trying circumstances. The Act 3 is Daniel 2.24 through 2.28a, where Daniel witnesses to the God who reveals mysteries. Uh, We're told that Daniel went to Arioch and he tells Arioch to hold off to not destroy the wise men of Babylon. And then I I love the humor in verse 25. Arioch walks forward, probably very proud of himself and Nebuchadnezzar and says, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. This is something of a humorous because as we know, he did not find anyone. Daniel uh, found him. Daniel went out to him and approached him. But uh, as we can see, this is something of Arioch taking uh, what doesn't rightfully belong to him, um, taking credit for something that God is doing. And then Daniel in verses 27 through 8 offers a bold answer when he is brought in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king asked him, he said, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. In his response, Daniel first echoes what the court experts said. He gives validity to their statements when they said, oh, king, no man can do this. And Daniel goes to the king and says, they were right. No man can do this. No one is able to do this but God alone. And this shows Daniel's just incredible reliance on God. I hope if I were in that situation when I was brought and someone said, can you do this for me? Because if not, I will kill you. I hope I would be able to give credit to God. I don't know. It it is definitely a challenging question to ask. But as Daniel begins to speak, he sets up in this court contest the fact that his God is superior to the gods of the Babylonians. And so now we enter into Act 4, which is uh, chapter 228b through 235. I want to start by looking at verse 30, and I think that verse 30 serves two points. Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. First, this shows, once again, Daniel's humility and reliance on the God of heaven to reveal mysteries. But there's also a second point from this verse, and it is that Daniel's response is a loving display to calm the paranoid fears of Nebuchadnezzar. When we look back at the beginning of this story, Nebuchadnezzar was concerned that his experts, all of his elite interpreters, were simply trying to take advantage of of him by pulling kind of the wool over his eyes, by not actually having any wisdom, but by just giving perhaps a comforting word instead of the true meaning. So in contrast to this, 
Daniel declares that the revelation was given by God for the sake of the king. We use the term emotional quotient, right? That having a high EQ. And in this verse, I think Daniel has something of a high EQ. I think he understands that the king is concerned, that the king is worried, that the king is fearful. And so by giving glory to God in the start, he also turns and says, this God seeks to give you comfort and peace as well, that seeks to calm your nervous heart. And I wonder how we can do that. I wonder how we, by knowing that God has has revealed his word to us, um, that God has set up rulers, how can we display a, a level of EQ like Daniel does to know the moment in order to speak a word of truth and a word of comfort to people? So in Daniel 2, 31 through 35, he confirms to Nebuchadnezzar that he has, in fact, received the contents of the dream. And he describes a statue made of four different materials, a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs and toes of iron and iron and clay. And then the image is struck by a stone, uh, is cut from a mountain and ends up filling the whole earth. That is uh, for Lucas, what he has for the fourth act. And now we turn to the fifth act, which is Daniel 2.36 through 2.45, in which Daniel interprets the dream. So these four different materials represent four different kingdoms. There are different scholarly opinions on this, different uh, scholars who think that these metals and these materials represent different kingdoms. But the most likely interpretation, the one that we will go with for this study, is that these materials represent Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the arms and chest, Greece for the legs, and Rome for the feet of clay and iron. And while there is a lot of debate over the dates, over these kingdoms, who they represent, over how it will all occur, there's something that's actually more important for us to notice. It is that the kingdoms of this world are transient that they are one after another. That is, Nebuchadnezzar is defeated by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians are defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks are overtaken by the Romans. This pattern reminds me of the poem Ozymandias by Shelley. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside me remains round the decay of that colossal wreck and boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. And like the poem by Shelley, nothing lasts, nothing lasts except for the kingdom of heaven. And that is what the stone that is cut out. The, the final kingdom is established forever and not taken over by another people. And this final kingdom is the kingdom that is established by Jesus Christ. He is the stone who was rejected and became the cornerstone. Um, I mentioned this last week, but there are a lot of connections throughout the book between uh, the narrative and the visions. And there are a lot of connections that are seen before between chapters two and seven and these four kingdoms. And and I want to make two observations about this. The, the first is that these kingdoms of man are combined to be formed into the image of a man, not God. These kingdoms are created after their own image. This is something that goes all the way back to the garden. Instead of man following God, man chooses to follow his own way. These kingdoms combine to make up a, a kingdom that is made after man, who is like the flowers of the grass that perish. In contrast to this, there is the kingdom of God that will last forever, um, that he will set up. 
Also, the second point is that it's been suggested by uh, commentator Goldsworthy, a scholar, that the animals representing the various kingdoms in, in chapter 7 represent an inversion of the appropriate created order. In Genesis 1 and 2, man is given dominion over beasts. In Daniel 7, the animals represent rulers. When these two come together, it gives us the impression that when man sets himself up as ruler of all things, he is inverting something at the very heart of creation. Not only are the kingdoms doomed to fail, they also cause their followers and leaders to be something less than human. When ultimate loyalty is given to a kingdom that is not set up by God, when we are shaped by forces that are not commanded by God, that it not God um, according to God's will and his way, we are serving that as something less than the best. And so in Daniel 2, 37 through 38, Nebuchadnezzar is described as having power and responsibility similar to that of Adam and that he was given authority over beasts and birds. And so we come to Act 6, Daniel 2, 46 through 49, in which Daniel uh, is honored by Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar also honors Daniel's God. This is the conclusion of the story. The court contest has happened. Daniel, uh, and not just Daniel, but Daniel's God has triumphed over the wise men of Babylon and the gods of the wise men of Babylon. Yahweh has bested the gods of the Babylonian empire. But interestingly enough, he's not only bested them, he has also rescued them. In this story and in scripture as a whole, God is the one who vanquishes and God is the one who rescues. God wants to destroy the idols of this world, but he also wants to rescue his image from the powers of sin. This is the two-part mission of God of which his people are a part, to judge and to restore, to be a part of the proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead and to be part of the restoring work that he is about on this earth. So in response, Nebuchadnezzar falls before Daniel in homage. Uh, this has caused some embarrassment to commentators throughout the years, but I don't think it should. Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping ultimately Daniel's God, who has spoken through Daniel. Um, but there's a secondary point here, is that the story with Nebuchadnezzar is not yet finished. Nebuchadnezzar has not fully come to understand who God is and has not come to fully give his obedience to him. God has more to do in the life of Nebuchadnezzar over the next two chapters. So as we conclude, Daniel is given great honors and rises higher in the ranks. There are two main takeaways I want us to go with at the end. First, God is the one who reveals mysteries hidden throughout the ages. The story of the whole world and its kingdoms is being told by him. And second, Daniel's trust in God's plan allowed him to operate wisely. As Christians, we know the end of the story. We know our Savior rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so we navigate our lives towards that end. And as we navigate our lives towards that end, we need to learn to ask questions like Daniel asked, why the urgency? Confident in God's plan gives us calm in all that we do, that we live lives that give glory and honor to our God and King. 